Remain standing if you wish to, and if you're tired and got worn out legs, go ahead and take a seat, um, especially if you've got a sore knee. <laughs> if you, you want to sit down, there's no problem. Romans chapter 2, 17 through 29 is our text today. The problem is the heart. I hope you'll see what the Gentiles could have that the moralist and legalist Jew had completely lost because it's really just a matter of the heart. And so as we read this, be looking for what sidelined, what detoured, what caused the spiritual decline of the moralist, the Jew who was devout but nothing more than a legalist. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent. Why? Being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself, it's an emphasis there, you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the babes. Why? Again, this participle tells us having the form of knowledge and truth. Where? In the law. You therefore... Who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you commit sacrilege or do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law but if you are a breaker of the law your circumcision has become uncircumcision therefore if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision and will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you are even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is the circumcision that which is outwardly in the flesh. But he who is a Jew is one who is inward and the circumcision of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Lord, this passage resonates so much truth with all of us. We understand it completely with our intellect. God, there's nothing really in this passage that is just so confounding that we can't understand it. God, that's not where the problem lies. The problem lies with our heart. 
And so, Father, today I pray that you will take these words and you will impress upon us how to apply them, what it looks like to have the law of God written on our hearts. What will that look like in fleshing it out, in Christian living? God, you are not impressed with us as a church who gains more and more knowledge because knowledge causes conceit, but love builds up. God, this is true for the Jew all through the Old Testament. And it came to a head when Jesus was on this earth. And he says, well, Isaiah prophesies of you hypocrites, for you praise me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. God, there's lessons that we can learn and we can avoid from this passage. So help us to apply it today for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's, there's nothing new that God is revealing in this passage. This has been God's plan when he gave the law. Deuteronomy chapter 10 tells us to circumcise our heart. When Jeremiah was prophesying and they had all the promises of God is God's covenant people. Jeremiah warned them that what God is really looking for is a circumcised heart and not merely head knowledge. Let me just read to you an exhortation that came from the lips of Jeremiah. If I can remember the passage, I should have wrote it down. Um, I'm, I'm bad about that sometimes. So if I can't find it, I will just move on. Well, it's not where I thought it was. So if somebody wants to hunt for it, you can. And, but anyway, this has been a theme through all of God's prophets, even in giving the law, Deuteronomy 10, 16, where God says, I am not looking for circumcision only. He, he, he says, refers to the Jewish people as stiff-necked, rebellion, and in chapter 2, Paul was dealing with both Jew and Gentile. He was dealing with the Jew who had the law. And he exhorts that Jewish person that you are going to be judged not by hearing the law, but whether you actually live it and do it. And then he exhorts the Gentile who does not have the written code of the Old Testament law, but yet by nature did the things that were contained in the law, he says that is enough to condemn you. It's not enough to justify you, but it's enough to condemn you because those who do not have the law will be judged without the law, be judged by the law that you had written in your conscience that you knew by nature. You knew it instinctively. In fact, you talk to an unbeliever and they, they know a lot of biblical principles, and they stand oftentimes in judgment of you and I when we don't live up to what the Bible expects of us. But that doesn't justify them. In fact, that just further condemns them because it shows that they know the true nature of the law, but they don't observe it themselves. And so there's no one who's going to escape God's judgment. But the Jew still thought he had special privileges. He had 
special rights as a child of Abraham, and especially because he was circumcised, because that was a sign that they were part of God's elect. They were part of God's chosen nation. They were from Abraham, and Abraham had given the covenant. And in, in Genesis chapter 15 and chapter, chapter 17, he says, This will be a covenant with me and you for your generations forever. And it was a distinct mark that they were different from all the other people around them. But the Jewish person forgot the real meaning of the covenant. The covenant meant that they were to be a blessing to all nations, that they weren't this elite group of people, that God has set his love on them, not because they were the most or the most powerful or the most godly, but because God was going to keep his faithful promise to Abraham. In fact, the unsaved person will often think that they are just as good but Paul is pointing out in chapter 2 that no one can boast before God. And then in the Old Testament, God reminds the Jew that his heart, and this is true of every individual, that we have a heart of stone. The new covenant is a promise to remove the heart of stone. God wants to give you and I a heart of flesh, a tender heart, a teachable heart, a humble heart, where the law is written not on a tablet, not with ink, but on the fleshly tablet of the heart written by the Holy Spirit. In fact, we are to be God's letters to the lost world, written and known by everyone. But when we fail to live that, what do we do? We bring this horrible reproach upon God's name. And that's what he's getting at in this passage. You Jews, his, his name is being blasphemed everywhere. Every time the Jewish people were subjugated, every time that they were invaded, people would mock the God of Israel and say, this is supposed to be Yahweh. This is supposed to be Elohim, the almighty God. This is supposed to be the temple. Jerusalem is supposed to be the joy of the whole earth, and it's nothing but rubble. And God's name was blasphemed because they did not live according to what God had asked them to do. And so the moralist Jew, he had no problem condemning the pagan. But Paul now wants to turn solely on the Jew. This entire passage is dealing with the Jewish legalist, the Jewish moralist. And you say, well, what does that have to do with me? I'll share with you what it has to do with you and me particularly because we can become just as complacent. We can be just as haughty, just as self-secured in our religion that we fail to live out the implications of the spirit-written law on your heart. It happened to me twice this week as I'm preparing this message. And it was humbling. It was humiliating. And I had to go back and apologize to people, ask their forgiveness. And the irony of it all is I was sitting at home engrossing myself into God's word. And then when I had the opportunity to live it, I failed. So this is applicable to all of us. My, my son came home from co-op. Not co-op, but he came home from um, his... Votech, 
And he brought a buddy home with him. And because it's freezing cold, I don't study in my study anymore. I study on the kitchen table. And he came home for lunch, and he brought an unsaved friend home. What an opportunity to have him right here in my living room, in my dining room, in my kitchen. But you know what the pastor's doing? I have got my nose so deep in the text, so deep on my computer, running cross-references, diagramming verses, looking at the conjugations of verbs, that 45 minutes this unbelieving boy sitting in my living room And he gets up and walks out the door, and they go back to school. And Tracy comes in, and she says, Patrick, did you sit in here the whole time? I said, well, yeah, I'm studying. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. What an opportunity that God brought right into my home. So don't think that this doesn't apply to us. It very, very much You call yourself a pastor. You call yourself a Christian. You call yourself a member of North Valley or whatever it is. Because the title means absolutely nothing. Nada. God is not impressed. God doesn't have any titles for us. We are children of the living God where the Holy Spirit has been sent into us crying out, Abba, Father. And if we don't live that way... We have missed the mark. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to myself. Self-reliance is such a dangerous place to be. And that's where the Jew was in the first century. Completely self-reliant on his own goodness, on his own righteousness, his ability to quote the law backwards and forward through their bar mitzvah, and knowing not only the law, but adding all their extra details to the law to where they would even actually strain out their drinks so a gnat wouldn't be swallowed. That was me this week. And what did I do instead? I swallowed a camel. It's not, it's not, not good recommended for anybody. So the title means nothing. The word Jew in itself is a wonderful word. The word Christian in itself is a wonderful word. If we live up to what it means, Yudah, the Hebrew word, means praised of the Lord. And that was the name given to Judah, one of the tribes of Israel. And through the Davidic kingdom was going to come because they were to be the praise of the Lord. And that's who they thought they were. They were the ones that God had made a covenant relationship with, the Jewish people. Not only that, they are the ones that had greater revelation. They didn't have to rely on creation to get their revelation. They didn't have to rely on conscience to get their revelation because both of those are inadequate because the creation is fallen and the conscience is fallen but they still have a remnant of all of God's glory. And you can discern, and they were accountable for that. But the Jew had God's complete revelation. And you think about what you and I have today. We have the New Testament. We have God's complete revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. God at sundry times and diverse manners, spake in time past to the prophets, 
through the prophets to our fathers, but in these last days, how has God spoken to you and I? He has spoken to you and I through his son, who is the fullness of God's glory. He is the express image of God's person. That's who Jesus is. And I can know everything about God. I can know a lot about God by looking at creation. But I know everything about my Father when I look at Jesus. So you and I have absolutely no excuse. The Jew had no excuse. In fact, the greater revelation we have, the more accountability we have. You call yourself a Jew? You rely, you rest yourself in the law. You make your boast in the law. Paul says that's a dangerous place to be if that's all you are doing. It's a dangerous place for you and I if all we do is get up in the morning and have our devotions and then we go about our daily life as if we weren't in the Word this morning. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, For unto whom much is given, of him shall much be required. If we call ourselves the follower of Jesus Christ, there's a lot that goes with that. Let everyone who names the name of Jesus depart from iniquity. That's the commandment to those who call themselves followers of Jesus. We have greater accountability. John Murray, I, I like reading him, and I'll just paraphrase something that he said. He said this, If we are not careful, the greatest privileges that we have as Christians can quickly turn into the greatest vice. We have so many privileges as believers. We have so much knowledge. We know that all sin is forgiven to us. We know that all we have to do is confess and God will wipe us clean as snow. That great privilege can be turned into an ugly vice. Our Christian liberty is a wonderful privilege as a follower of Jesus. You and I are no longer under the law. We are free under Christ. And Paul says that privilege can be turned into an ugly vice to indulge our flesh. So always let us be on guard. Our greatest privileges as followers of Jesus can quickly turn into a greatest vice. So they had the title. And then they rested. The word rest has the idea to rely on. This is where they put their trust. The law, legalism, church attendance, whatever you want to put under that, it is misplaced trust. Our trust is in Jesus Christ alone and in his righteous sacrifice for you and I. Paul said this. He says, we are the circumcision who have no confidence in the flesh. But we trust the living God. So I've got to ask myself every day, what am I relying on to live the Christian life? They were resting. They were relying on the law. You rest on the law. Misplaced trust. Jesus said this to the Pharisees who knew the law so well. He says, you search the scriptures. It's a present progressive. You're doing it all the time, in other words. You search the scriptures. Why? For in them you think you have eternal life. 
He says, you're reading them, but you don't even see what they're saying. For in them they testify of me. So we can be so close and yet so far away. He went on to say in the next verse, but you are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. That's where life is found. We need to keep our relationship with Jesus fresh every day. It's, it's, it's new every morning, right? His mercies are new every morning, Jeremiah said. Great is his faithfulness. Paul says, I've got to die daily. I can't rest on the manna that I ate last week. In fact, if I try to store up two days of manna, what's it going to do? It's going to rot. It's going to sour. It's going to be full of worms. And if I'm trying to live on yesterday's devotions, I'm going to be eating some stale food. So we rest not on the law. We rest in a relationship. The next thing that these Jews did, they made their boast in God. The Jews boasted that they had never been in bondage. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Jesus told them, many of those who were half-hearted believers, he said, to those who believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. It wasn't just this head knowledge. It wasn't just this say a prayer and raise your hand, walk down an aisle, feel good, and Jesus has promised you everlasting life. He says, no, if you really want to be my follower, you will continue in my word, and my word will make you free, and you will be free indeed if the Son sets you free. And you know what the Pharisees said? We're Abraham's children. We've never been in bondage. Well, they missed that too. They were in bondage by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Medes, and now by the Romans. What arrogance. They made their boast in God. And Jesus turned around and said, whoever practices sin, he's the slave of sin. So our boasting has to be in Christ alone. Paul said this to the Galatians, God forbid that I should boast, except or save in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the only room I have for boasting. It's in the cross because that's where I have been crucified and the world has been crucified to me. I have nothing else to boast in, nothing else that I can bring to God that would actually even please him. The next thing that these Jews did is they approved the things that are excellent. I I, want to go back to Jeremiah again, Jeremiah chapter 7 where they made their boast, they relied in this covenant relationship that they had. You remember what they said when Jeremiah predicted the invasion of Babylonian? Well, he, he did a lot of signs, a lot of symbolic preaching. At one point he took a, a yoke to symbolize that they were going to be under the yoke of Babylon. And I think it was Hananiah, who was a false prophet, came and just took that wooden yoke and smashed it and broke it. So Jeremiah was instructed to go make a metal one. Go make an iron one. And, and the prophet said, oh, in two years, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be gone. And he why? Because we have the temple. We have all of the sacrifices. We are God's special people. And this is what Jeremiah said. He says, trust not in the lying words of the prophet saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. 
What did Habakkuk say? Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah, and Habakkuk was aghast that the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were going to be God's instrument of punishment. He said, that, that just can't be, God. You, you got that one wrong. How can you use a wicked nation to punish us who aren't even as wicked as the Babylonians? He said, how are you going to work that out, God? You know what he said? I like what he said. He says, I'm going to shut up, and I'm going to wait until what God reveals to me. And this is what God revealed to Habakkuk. He says, you know what? The just... They don't rely on the temple of the Lord. They don't rely on their sacrifices. They don't rely on all their head knowledge. The just shall live by their faith. And now the fourth thing that these Jewish people were doing, and you and I can do the exact same thing. They were approving the things that are excellent. Every one of us in this room has discernment. Everyone in this room Judges what is right and wrong. We have the ability to know that because the Spirit of God lives in us. And these Jewish people, they were approving. The Greek word to approve, it means to weigh up and to analyze and to put it through the fire and put it through the sieve. And whatever comes through that is the best thing. The, how did the Jews do that? Well, let's, let's look at the text. It'll tell us how they did it. You approve the things that are excellent. How? Being instructed out of the law. You and I, we can do the same thing. We can take the Bible. And we can test certain things, can't we? And we know by the Bible what is discernibly good and what is not so good. The Jew was able to distinguish what was holy and what was unholy. He was able to tell what was clean and what was unclean. He was able to tell the difference between what was just and unjust. And this became actually a stumbling block to him because he didn't test his own heart. How often I find myself getting caught into a conversation where I'm approving the things that are excellent, I'm testing them, and I am just putting down the things of the world and all the secular humanism around us and all that garbage that goes with it, but I'm not doing the same thing with my own heart. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be discerning. The Jews were, and they had that ability, and you and I should be, but the priority always has to be on our heart. And so what did this lead to? It led to, in verse 19, self-confidence. You are confident that you yourself, notice the emphasis there, it's emphatic. The word yourself, the pronoun is not needed in the text. It's to give emphasis to it. You, you of all people, you who are a Jew, you who know the law, you who are proving the things that are excellent, you're boasting about what you know in the law. You yourselves become confident that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. You're an instructor of the foolish. You're a teacher of babes. Having a not, And look at why. Look at this. This is so important. Don't miss this. Having the form of knowledge and truth. Just all they had was the form of it. So what led to this self-confidence? It was their greater enlightenment. But here's the problem. The more enlightened you and I come, this is a, a double-edged sword. It's a balance that we have to walk so closely and so finely. 
the more knowledge we get, sometimes the less teachable we are. In fact, if you have got a position of leadership and a position of teaching, you are probably one of the hardest people to instruct because you don't like it. You don't want it. The Pharisees were no different. They were the teachers. They were the guide to the blind. They were the instructors of the foolish. And in John chapter 9, we've got a beautiful biblical illustration of all of this. A blind man standing right in front of them. And they say to this blind man, give glory to God because we don't know where this Jesus came from. I love what the blind man said. He says, how are you so stupid? <laughs> Pretty much. I'm paraphrasing. But he says, how can you not know? It's never been heard of that some man would give sight to the man who's been born blind. Why? A marvelous miracle has been done among you that you don't know where it came from. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. And you know what they did? They got angry and they said, how dare you? You were born in sin and are you instructing us? No way, it's not happening. They kicked him out of the church. When you and I have self-confidence, partly it could become because we have got greater truth and greater knowledge. We have got to stay so close to Jesus, not just the book. The Jew were people of the book, but they didn't know the God of the book. Why? Where did their self-confidence come from? Their spirituality? Well, it says that they had a form of knowledge. That's important. That word form, it's the Greek word morphe. It has this connotation to it. It means an outward shape. That's what morphe means. It means what appears on the physical. It has no reference to what's on the internal. Philippians, Paul knew as a Pharisee exactly what that looks like. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other thinketh he have confidence, I the more, more than any other man, I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm the stock of Israel. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Out of all the Hebrews, I'm a Hebrew out of them. I mean, you, you can't get much more righteous than this guy. Look what he says next. He says, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for the law, I was blameless. That's a pretty bold statement. But Paul came to this conclusion I did not know my sin until I came across this commandment. Thou shalt not covet. I knew my heart wasn't right. And then he went on to say this. I count all of that as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus my Lord. That's where you and I have got to come back to. Self-confidence leads to a wrong appreciation of truth. It has a form and appearance of outward religion. Point number two this morning, when we fail to live the truth that we know, what happens? God's reputation takes the hit. 
That's what happens. Hypocrisy. Right knowledge, right teaching by the law or whether it's by the conscience. It only leads to the damage of Christ's testimony if it's done by Christ's people. Hypocrisy. Paul gives five rhetorical questions, and we're not going to examine them. We're just going to simply read them. But look at these rhetorical questions. Are you an instructor of the foolish? Do you teach others? Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you who abhor abhor idols, do you rob temples? This is the one we're going to kind of stick on for a second. You who make your boast in the law, do you actually dishonor God through breaking the law? The result is that God is dishonored. By boasting in the law, you and I proclaim that we have biblical convictions. Every one of us have biblical convictions. And we should have biblical convictions. But here's the danger. When you and I violate the biblical convictions that the world knows that Christians should have, What do we do? We actually bring dishonor to God. Let me give you another biblical illustration. David, a man after God's own heart. A man who wrote the beautiful Psalms of Israel. A man who went up to a giant and said, You have defied the armies of the living God. I will take your head off this day. God delivered me from a lion. God delivered me from a bear. And you're not going to be any different. And the nations around Israel, they knew David's reputation. They knew he was a godly man. They knew he was a warrior that fought God's battles. And one day, David decided not to go to battle. When all the other kings do, And David went up on his rooftop, and you know the story. He looked across the way, took a woman that wasn't his wife, committed adultery, tried to cover his tracks, tried to cover his sin, but everybody knew what had happened when poor old Uriah got stuck in the heat of battle, and then they retreated. Whoops, well, you know, the sword takes one guy just as the other. Oh, no, David, we know better than that. And so Nathan the prophet comes and he confronts him. And what he says is very telling because it's true of every Christian who does not live up to what the world expects of you and I. His name is dishonored. This is what Nathan said to him. After David finally confesses his sin, the prophet said, the Lord has put away your sin, David. But the damage and the wreck, it's a train that can't turn around. That's sort of my paraphrase again. He ended up losing four children because of that. The consequences of our behavior do not end with you and I. But the worst part of what Nathan said was this. However, because of your deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Oh, that must have just cut David's heart. He was forgiven. He was blessed by God. God was going to keep him and use him anyway. 
but he couldn't undo the damage that he'd done to the testimony of the one true God of Israel. So when we fail to live by God's truth, his reputation is disgraced. To be blasphemed, in verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. That's a quote from, uh, from Isaiah chapter 52. But the idea is found everywhere in the Old Testament that people knew what Israel was supposed to represent. They knew that Jerusalem was the joy of the whole earth. They knew it was the covenant place where sacrifices were made to the one true God, that they didn't sacrifice children, that they didn't pray to stars, they didn't pray to statues, they didn't pray to idols, that this was God's showpiece to the world. And yet when they rebelled, God said this, I will scatter you among the heathen. You will be dispersed through the countries. According to their ways, I will do to you. I will judge them. And when you enter into the nations, where you go and where I send you, they will say, this people has profaned the holy name. These are the people of the Lord, and they have gone forth out of his land. Ezekiel 36, 19. So where do we want to bring all this to? A conclusion. The true Jew keeps the law from a regenerated heart. We need to be regenerated. We need to be made alive by the Holy Spirit. In our flesh, nothing good dwells. We can't please God in our flesh. We need to turn to God. We need to admit that. And not only through salvation... Daily, we need to be walking under the Holy Spirit's influence. A regenerated heart that keeps in touch daily with the Holy Spirit's filling. God never has been concerned with rites and rituals, has he? We all know that. We're familiar with all of these things. Even the unbeliever, they know that religion, true religion, isn't about... In fact, you know, people come up to me and... I used to get really kind of cute with them, and they would say, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm opposed to organized religion. And so I'd be kind of a smart aleck. I'd say, oh, so you want disorganized religion? It, and that doesn't work. That's just, you're just being a, a smart aleck. <laughs> you know what I do now? I said, praise God. And they look at you weird. And I says, Jesus, Jesus was against organized religion too. You're on Jesus' side. And I turn it, and they look at me and say, what do you mean? And I, talk, I begin to share with them all the things that Jesus hated about organized religion, about the Sabbath day, the way they distorted it, about love and the way they distorted it. And you can turn that into a hook to bring the gospel to people. But our God, and that's what you can share with people, our God has never been concerned with rites and rituals. It's never been about that. God has never been concerned with that. The sign of the covenant is only legitimate if you have it in your heart. We're going to have baptism next Sunday night. And baptism means absolutely nothing if it's not a testimony that you were dead in your sin. And now you are alive with Christ. And you are risen with him to do what? To walk in the newness of life. We keep the ceremony of the Lord's Supper every first of the month. And it means absolutely nothing 
if Jesus Christ isn't our flesh and blood that we eat and drink for our spiritual sustenance every single day. For circumcision is indeed profitable. And these other ordinances and these other rites, they are indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. It means absolutely nothing. God requires a change of a heart. True religion is spiritual circumcision. Even in the book of Deuteronomy, after the second giving of the law, this is what God said. And now Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. You want to know what God requires? That's it in a nutshell. And then he says this, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and no longer be stiff-necked, for the Lord your God is a God of gods. He is Lord of lords, a great, a mighty, an awesome God who regards no one's person. God's not a respecter of persons. He's not a respecter of rituals. He's not a respecter of religious routine. Don't make religion, don't make the mistake of making a switching religion with reality. This is what the Jew did. So I'm just going to quickly summarize this passage here because I know it's getting late and I know we've been here a long time and you've been very patient. But verse 27 and 28, he goes on to say that true circumcision is not a written code. For he is not a Jew, one who is outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outwardly of the flesh. But a Jew is one who is inward, the circumcision of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So you see those positives and negatives? Let's just kind of look at them really quickly. What is a, a true Jew is not. A true Jew doesn't get his praise from God. I mean, the other way around. A true Jew is not someone who gets his praise from men. A true Jew is one who has a transformed heart. A false Jew is someone who merely listens to the law. A true Jew is someone who lives the law. A true Jew is not someone who relies on outward appearance. A true Jew is one who relies on the transforming power of the gospel. A true Jew is not someone who trusts in legalism. A true Jew is one who trusts in the Holy Spirit to transform you from within. We need to be vigilant because the true heartfelt religion can easily decline for all of us who have greater knowledge. We know that we are in this decline. Every one of us can look at our lives and examine it today. We are in this decline when we start emphasizing conformity to man's expectations and we put less stress on the inward reality of our walk with Jesus. We know that we are in spiritual decline when spiritual disciplines 
become dry and automatic rather than living and spontaneous. We know that we are declining when we are not following Jesus out of love and humble submission, but simply empty formality. Let us avoid the other extreme on the other end just as well. I haven't preached that because it's not really in this text, but just the warning of going to the other extreme. We want to avoid that just as well, where licentiousness and spiritual freedom becomes the banner cry. We need to avoid this turning our privileges into a license and selfish indulgence and spiritual pride and spiritual presumption. So the Christian life is not easy. It's a vigilant life. It's a vigilant walk. And that's what Paul was trying to warn the Roman Jewish moralists about. And hopefully, we have taken due warning as well. Let's close in prayer. Father, God, thank you for this living book. Thank you, God, that it's sharper than a double-edged sword. Thank you, God, that's a discerner of our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. And God, sometimes we don't premeditate sin. We just do sins of omission. And we do those things because we are getting confident. We're getting restful. We're getting boastful. We're getting compliant, complicit in our knowledge. So God, today I pray that when we walk out of these doors, and you might not remember any of this sermon next week, I pray that we will remember this one thing, that God wants someone who is passionately in love with Jesus and loves to feast on his word to have his hungry soul ministered to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.